Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll & Mooring, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Welcome back. This is part two of our podcast series, where Mana and I are focusing on Department of Justice FCA investigations and common mistakes that targets make when defending these investigations. In today's episode, we will discuss two additional common mistakes. The first one, focusing on relator's character and the second, letting the government calculate damages first. If you missed part one, recommend going back to that one. We addressed using discovery to dictate the pace of the investigation, as well as the benefits of developing an affirmative narrative early on in the investigation. Our guest today is Michael Shaheen, returning from part one in this series. Michael is a partner in the White Collar and Regulatory Enforcement, as well as healthcare groups in our DC office. He focuses on federal litigation, investigations, and enforcement actions. Michael has significant experience with the False Claims Act, particularly emphasizing on healthcare fraud. Before joining Kroll, Michael served as a trial attorney with the fraud section of the Department of Justice, where his work primarily involved investigating and prosecuting FCA matters. Welcome back, Michael, and thanks for joining us again today to bring your perspective as a former DOJ trial attorney investigating and prosecuting FCA matters. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, glad to have you, Michael. Let's dive in here. As for a little bit of background, the government relies heavily on relators to bring potential FCA enforcement actions to its attention. And according to some of DOJ's fiscal year 2019 statistics, over 80% of FCA cases filed in that year were initiated by KETAM relators. So if an entity is the subject of a KETAM FCA complaint and receives a CID from the Department of Justice while the complaint is under seal, one of the first questions that tends to be asked, and particularly by defendants, is who is or who are the relators? And the question and how it's addressed can often lead to a number of missteps. So for one, it could lead an entity, despite the best of intentions, to potentially treat the suspected relator, who's frequently an employee, differently and in a manner that a relator might argue was retaliatory. And in that instance, in addition to the FCA complaint, the company may ultimately be faced with a whole new problem that could even persist following a successful resolution of the original FCA complaint. But putting aside retaliation concerns, if an entity is aware of the relator, whether an employee or not, this can also factor in its strategy discussions with the Department of Justice. It's not uncommon for a client to find a relator motivated by something other than wanting to prevent fraud from being perpetrated against the United States. We've seen that plenty of times. So Michael, in the six years that you worked at DOJ's Civil Fraud Section on False Claims Act cases, what strategies did you see from targets with respect to relators? Looking back, I'm not really sure there were strategies plural. It was really just one strategy. And I found that in every case where the target of the investigation figured out who the relator was, and that was whether because they deduced it on their own or because I had partially lifted the seal and provided an unredacted complaint, the target would almost always fixate on the relator's character and just devote an inordinate amount of time and attention to all the reasons why the relator was unreliable or just in it for the money, or disgruntled. And in many cases, they were right. I'm not sure, though, why defense counsel thought that, that was what I wanted to hear about, but they clearly felt the need to tell me every chance they got. So following up on that, I mean, what advice would you have 
as to whether a target should focus on relator's character at all during the investigation phase. Speaking from the defense counsel perspective, I think a lot of that is sort of like, hey, you don't have to investigate this too thoroughly, DOJ, because likely these facts were made up. Is there any role for that at all? Yeah, I, I think the short answer is no. I get why it's tempting. I get why targets struggle to get past the relator and the relator's character. And when you get down to it, oftentimes, the reality is there's someone in the company who's alleging that that company or that another person in that company committed fraud. And nevertheless, the company has to live with that person for the duration of the investigation or litigation. And it's really hard, I have to believe, not to fixate on that dynamic. And internally, there may be reasons or justification for addressing this and devoting a lot of time and resources to this dynamic. But the DOJ attorneys don't care, just to be blunt. And just to put it in perspective, I've given a few lectures and presentations on how civil fraud attorneys conduct their investigations. And I always name my relator after the most despicable people I can think of. I steer clear of politics and truly polarizing historical figures. But I do this because it simply doesn't matter to the DOJ attorney who the relator is. The relator could be one of the worst people on earth. And the DOJ attorney will still have that key tam staring in front of them. They'll have the alleged facts and they will run those facts to ground regardless of who the relator is. And given that the relator's character is irrelevant to the DOJ attorneys, when the target comes to the negotiating table or delivers a presentation and spends time on the relator's character, it makes it seem like the target doesn't want to engage on the real facts and doesn't want to engage on the law. And that either leads to annoying the DOJ attorney or could inspire the DOJ attorney to think there's more there there. My advice to targets is, Acknowledge the relator. You might say a few things if you want, if you really feel compelled to, but don't spend much time on it. Say thank you for the unredacted complaint and then turn your focus to the alleged facts and the applicable law and move on from the relator. Thanks, Michael. That makes sense. And it sounds like a key takeaway you're stating is that an overfocus on relator's character may signal to the Department of Justice that defendant's substantive case is on the weaker side. But let's move from relator's character to the second mistake we're covering today, letting the government calculate damages first. Sometimes a target may be concerned about damages, but what potential concerns result from having the government put on the table its calculation of damages at issue first? And I'll I'll just acknowledge from the outset that what I'm about to say is counterintuitive. Because in normal litigation, when you have two private parties, you always want the other party to go first. And that's true whether it's damages or floating a settlement number or the theory of the case. I get that. But civil fraud doesn't operate like a normal party. Once civil fraud arrives at a single damages number, that locks them into an overall settlement number. And it will take quite a bit to move them off that position. So just to flesh that out, the trial attorney assigned to the case, usually with the help of a data analytics expert, will review the data and calculate single damages. And that's before negotiations then, the trial attorney will draft a memo to his or her superior and explain what the damages figures and why. And then that memo will go up the chain at least one, if not two more levels. So now, to get DOJ to move off that initial number, the target has to not only convince the trial attorney that the trial attorney was wrong, but that trial attorney then has to rewrite the memo explaining why the new damages calculation is correct, and that trial attorney has to convince his or her reviewer 
and potentially others why the new damages number should be applied. And that's a really tough sell. And one more point on that. So once the government settles on a single damages number, the only remaining variable is litigation risk. In other words, if DOJ says single damages is X, the only way the target can avoid paying 2X is by demonstrating significant litigation risk. So it's much better to start at a low X and then apply litigation risk. And that means thinking in advance and sometimes putting your number out first. So that's interesting, Michael, and it totally agree. It can be counterintuitive, but here I totally, we see the value in that and have lived that with experience and trying to convince DOJ to move off of an initially arrived at singles number. But are there any situations where it might make sense to have DOJ offer up its calculation of damages first? Like just to give an example, if it's very early on in investigation and there's not much known, sometimes as defense counsel, it can be hard in the beginning to discern really where DOJ believes the heart is of the allegations or the angles that it views as more serious versus fluff, especially in a relator complaint? And could this be a way to figure out what DOJ is really thinking on the case, right? I think there's some concern on the defense counsel side of, well, we don't want to put out our number first and put something as more serious or even up for consideration if DOJ wasn't already thinking it first? I'd say if you're really early on in the investigation, so we're talking before presentations and negotiations, it could make sense to have that conversation. And just to flesh that out, it might make sense for the target's counsel to say, my client is in no way admitting liability here, and here are all the reasons why he or she or it is innocent. But if you could, DOJ, prove up this fraud case, What's the ballpark range of damages and how are you calculating it? That could make sense. The problem again, though, is that the trial attorney will have to come up with that damages theory and it may get hard to move that figure going forward. And I would, I would say I, I think a better strategy would be to say, again, my client is innocent for all of these reasons, but even if you could prove fraud, it would only be this small amount. So affirmatively framing the damages analysis as early on as possible could get that X to be significantly lower when the multiplier is ultimately applied. I see. So it's like, hey, we think it's only X DOJ. If you don't think it's X, like why? And then I guess you could still get the information you're seeking from having that conversation. Almost the art of it is getting DOJ's reaction before the memo is drafted, right? Before there's a committed position. And I can see that depending perhaps on the attorneys that you're dealing with. I guess really from all of this, a big picture perspective, part of the takeaway here continues to be, and we had this in our first podcast of the series, that it behooves an FCA target to maintain open lines of communication with DOJ as this can enhance a target's ability to take some control and shape over the course of the investigation and potential fallout. On the point of damages calculations while we're here, how important, another thing we hear frequently is we're coming up with our damages theory first is recommended. How close does our damages figure have to track or match the defense theory in the case? I don't think it has to match. I think you can again say my client is innocent for all of these reasons. But even under your theory, DOJ, under DOJ's theory, the damages are only this small amount. And I don't think those statements are necessarily intention. That's how I would frame that discussion. Thanks, Michael. So last question, 
on the damage calculation front in relator cases, bringing it all back full circle here. Even if the target and DOJ come to an agreement and are willing to settle the case, what happens if the relator does not agree to the amount? So any pointers here on how much deference, if any at all, the Department of Justice will give to the relator? Yeah, in my experience, that's more of a DOJ problem than a target problem. In other words, if the target can convince DOJ to accept a number, then it's really up to DOJ to have that fight with relators. And that's a fight DOJ should win every time. And just to put some context into that, I'd say I didn't win every fight I had while I was at DOJ, but I never lost a fight with relators. That was something I felt pretty confident in my ability to do. So perhaps a bigger issue is when Maine Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office disagree. I mean, that can cause real problems for a target. And that's the type of problem that a target wouldn't necessarily know or have any insight into. And that would be hard for the target. But this goes back, I think, to Jacinta's point that having a good relationship with government counsel can help in that situation because they'll pull back the curtain a little bit and let you know what the problem is, what the hesitation is, they'll give you tea leaves to read. And so, again, having that positive relationship or trust, even if you're fighting, but having that trust might get you a little bit more insight than you otherwise would have gotten. Well, that's all for today's episode on Let's Talk FCA. Thanks, Michael, for joining us to close out the second part of that two-part series on common mistakes that targets make in defending FCA investigations. If any of our listeners have any follow-up questions on these topics, please feel free to reach out to me at 213-443-5563, Michael at 202-508-8766, or Jacinta at 202-624-2573. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca.